All right, thank you again for joining us today. So the topic of today's discussion is drafting and filing your first design application. If you can go to the next slide, Brian. So a couple of disclaimers before we start. So the views and opinions expressed herein do not necessarily represent the views of Gillette, uh, Saul Ewing or Saul Ewing's clients. This is an educational program, not legal advice. So with the, the disclaimers out, I'd like to introduce myself. I'm John Lipchitz. I'm a patent attorney for the Gillette Company right here in uh, South Boston. And I decided to, to use a pre-COVID picture of myself there to, to remind us of the, the good times before social distancing masks and when the Patriots would, would actually make the, the playoffs. I've and been... Go ahead, Brian. I'm Brian Landry, uh, partner and vice chair of the IP practice group at Saul Ewing in Boston. Uh, I, uh, I practice broadly uh, across uh, patent design trademarks. And uh, again, another pre-COVID picture uh, for back when uh, we could uh, see trophies. <laughs> so we'd like to learn a little bit about you. Uh, Jenna is gonna throw up a brief survey uh, just so we understand uh, what the background of our audience is and we can tailor things appropriately. So Brian, we can probably just, while we're waiting for those results, we can give sort of our background in regards to this. So uh, my technical background is mechanical engineering. So prior to going to law school, I, I worked for a medical uh, device company in R&D. So I've been practicing law for approximately 16 years now. And I'm probably filing about between 10 to 15 design patents each year. And uh, I come from a computer science background, although I practice much more in the mechanical, medical device and design area these days. Been practicing since 2006, so about 15 years. And uh, typically filed between about five and 10 design patent applications each year. That's I'm not great. sure if uh, Jenna can close out the poll. Great. Great. So it sounds like we have a pretty broad uh, or pretty even distribution between uh, mechanical, electrical, and life sciences, which is great to see. Uh, uh, I can't quite scroll down through. Oh, now I can. Uh, uh, a, a bit of a bimodal distribution between people uh, less than three years and over 11. Uh, and a lot of people who haven't filed or don't file design applications that often. So it sounds like yeah, the people have selected the right program. Great. So let's get started with our, our next slide there. Yep. All right. So some of your clients may have an understanding of design rights and may ask you to file patents, uh, design patents, along with their utility patents. However, others may not understand um, what they might be able to protect in regards to a design. They may be thinking only about what their product or device does and not necessarily the, the aesthetics of the device. So if your client provides what appears to be finished drawings for a utility filing, you should probably inquire further into opportunities for design protection for them. 
So maybe the aesthetic design is not completed yet, but the function is ready to be filed on. In such case, the utility patent may be filed with basic line drawings and the design patent can be filed at a, at a later time as your client works on this. So if your client understands what can be protect, protected, this may stimulate them to be more creative and then allow you to file more, more patents for them. And just to add to that, uh, uh, Gene Quinn uh, at IP Watchdog a blog had a timely story this morning about uh, the rates of design filings. And although they've been rising considerably after the Sam's, Apple Samsung decision, it still only represents about 7% of the utility filings in the United States. So uh, it, it's growing, but still probably underutilized. So we're hoping this uh, presentation will get those numbers to, to change, right, Brian? Yep. <laughs> so, Great. so designs do ma do matter, right? So here, here are a couple of takeaways, at least from, from me in in-house uh, perspective that I want you to, to remember after this, we have this call today. So design patents should be part of an overall IP strategy. So you shouldn't be just thinking about utility patents, uh, trademarks and copyrights, design patents should be part of that overall strategy as well. So every time you're, you're handling a utility patent, you should be thinking of, is there an opportunity to protect this with, with designs? So designs protect uh, uh, FMOT, F-M-O-T, which is a term that was coined by the Procter & Gamble CEO, A.G. Lafley, that stands for the first moment of truth. So that is, as soon as consumers see the product, they wanna buy the product. That's the, the first moment of truth. The second moment of truth uh, for background is, is how the product actually performs, which is protected more with utility patents. So up, oh, go back to that previous slide real quick, Brian. Uh, so consumers are willing to pay more for unique and aesthetically pleasing products. They're even willing to pay more if it's packaged in a nice box as this conveys a, a sense of superiority and, and quality. Apple, as an example, has lots of technology on their devices but they also focus on good design in, in the product and packaging and they, and they protect those designs. Design patents also play an important role in e-commerce, which should never be forgotten. Many online platforms such as eBay and Amazon will accept design patents to take down infringing offers. Next slide. So here's a quick overview of the topics we're going to discuss today. First, designs are different than utility patents, not necessarily better or worse, but, but different. So we'll cover the requirements for design patents and, and highlight uh, some of these important differences. I'll quickly go over the, the, the anatomy and the, and the different parts of a design patent. Next, I'll talk about uh, what you should discuss with your client before you start drafting your, your design patent. And do not get trapped by thinking design patents are just drawings and are easy. You should have a strategy in place and there could be many pitfalls. So Brian is gonna end up walking through you through the details of these uh, toward the end of the presentation. Uh, next slide. So design and utility patents do have some similarities. However, I would like to keep in mind two key differences I believe help justify design patents in your overall protection strategy to your clients. 
Number one is, is costs, and number two is uh, patent term. So design patents have lower filing, search, examination, and allowance fees. They're almost half the cost of a utility patent for a large entity. Design patents are primarily drawings, so they generally take less time to prepare. Thus, the charge for drafting a design patent will be less than that of a utility patent. Prosecution is also typically easier with, with less issues and shorter responses. Lastly, design patents do not have maintenance fees that your clients are going to have to pay every single year. An important, uh, important uh, fact to note is the term for design patents is 15 years from, from grant, not from filing. Accordingly, one may be able to get a longer term than 20, 20 years from filing as, it, as in a util, utility case. However, note that uh, there, there's no patent term adjustment for, for designs. So later on, Brian will talk to you about you know, potentially uh, extending your, your term of protection for a design patent. So what are the requirements for a design patent? First, it must be an article of manufacture. That is, it must be embodied or applied to a man-made tangible object. For example, it cannot just be an icon or a surface treatment. Brian will review a recent case on this particular issue. Now, US law allows for what, what are called partial designs in which only portions of the article, uh, article of manufacture is claimed. The next requirement is ornamentality which is strongly tied to the function of, a, of the article of manufacture, or I should say uh, lack thereof of the function. If the design is essential to achieve the function of an article of manufacture, it cannot be subject for a design patent. So ask yourself, are there, there are numerous ways to achieve the function of the article? If so, there's a good argument that the ornamentality requirement is satisfied. Note the article may be hidden in its final application, such as a hip implant, but still satisfy this ornamentality requirement. Next, originality. Basically, you, you can't steal someone else's design. However, if you end up grouping uh, familiar forms and decorations, this may, this may end up satisfying the originality requirement. But remember, there's also the question of both novelty and obviousness, which are the next two, two requirements. So novelty must be new. Note, same article may be novel from a utility perspective, but not novel from a design perspective. So if you have a, a cooler, for example, having the same shape, but different materials to, to improve the, its cooling capabilities, you may have novelty for utility, but not design. Like, Similar, uh, a different shape of a cooler may, may have novelty for design, but not necessarily utility. Lastly, obviousness. Just with utility patents, reasonable minds can disagree as far as what is obvious and what is not obvious. The, the takeaway uh, for this presentation, I would say, is in regards to obviousness, uh, the more obvious your design is, the less protection you're going to end up having at the end of the day. Courts will apply an infringement test where they compare the accused design versus the patented design, as well as the prior art, to determine which, which the accused design is closer to. Next slide.
right? Yep. Great. So here's, here's a, a front page of a, a design patent. So just to, to run through some of the, the different parts, if you're not that familiar with it. So the, the title, this is tied to the article of manufacture. So Brian will get into this later on. You, you want to make sure that your, your, your title is, is not too narrow, yet still captures the, the article of manufacturer. Inventors, an important note on inventors is these may change depending on what embodiments end up being claimed at the end of the day. So just as in utility patents, it may be a good idea to have an inventorship memo just to capture who invented what. The assignee, make sure you have uh, agreements in place covering inventorship if working with agencies or, or third parties. Ideally, these, these agreements would also uh, have confidentiality clauses in them as, as well. The description of the, the views, you may not necessarily need all the views. You know, Brian will walk th through this in more detail. Uh, typically, there's, there, there's seven or, or eight standard, standard views for an article of manufacturer. After the description of views, you'll notice there's what we call a, a broken line statement. So your drawing may have several different types of, of lines. So as you can see here in, the, in this view, uh, solid lines are the, the claim portion. So the oval uh, racetrack shape opening, that is the area of the device that is actually being, being claimed. The, the dash lines are unclaimed uh, subject matter. So within reason, dash lines and broken lines can be converted back and forth as far as uh, if you end up wanting to file a, a continuation application off of one of your, your original applications. So Brian will review several cases later on highlighting different watchouts for these types of, of, of line drawings. So I'm showing this slide to, to illustrate another type of line that may be used. This is called a, a symbolic break. So looking at this particular can, you can see that it, it's covering really an upper portion in a, in a lower portion. So this way you can have a single set of drawings covering uh, different proportions, if you will, of, uh, of your article. So this would cover potentially a, um, a, a, shor a shorter can as well as a, a much more elongated can. So before starting your drafting your, your patent application, you're going to want to review some various items with, with your client. So here's some questions you may want to consider. Uh, these will help develop your, your strategy for your, for your filing. So first of all, when do you need to file? Is, is there an up, upcoming public uh, disclosure or, or trade show? You don't want to become aware of novelty destroying disclosures after you, you file. This is always a, an attorney's worst nightmare. Keep in mind though, that design patents do have grace periods, both in the US and in other jurisdictions. So not as all lost if, if you end up having a, a disclosure, as long as you can react to it fairly quickly. Inventorship issues can also arise just like utility patents. So as previously mentioned, be sure to capture the names of who contributed to, to which embodiments and make sure there's no issues in regards to ownership. 
for example, was the, the design uh, developed or, or, or drawn by an external agency with no agreement in place? Next, um, format of the drawings. Um, I'd like to just make sure you use a professional illustrator uh, to prepare your, your design drawings. Even if you're in, in a rush, you, you're not gonna wanna submit uh, CAD files for, for your designs. And we'll go over a watch out on this uh, later on. It's also good to understand the needs of your, your patent illustrator and what format the CAD models you, your client is able to provide. Uh, just remember that napkin sketches are gonna cost you a lot more to have your patent illustrator draft than, than something that is, that is coming from a, a 3D model. You want, you're gonna wanna find out if there are any related cases because this gives you an opportunity potentially to claim, claim priority as well as you may end up running into some prior art issues. Have an understanding if, if form protection is desired. This is important because drawing requirements may differ in other jurisdictions than the, the US. So always connect with your, your foreign counterparts if form protection is desired. Understand what is important to your client and, and how their design is different. I like to call these key equity elements. These will help determine what you claim and how many embodiments you end up filing. What, what is the relevant art? Are there any other prior, prior disclosures? Trust but verify. So your client may come to you with something that say is, is, is an earth shattering design that's never been seen before anywhere. But just as with utility patents, a prior art search is a good idea. Make, make sure you submit an IDS with, with, with that prior art search, just as you would for a utility filing. Next, get, get an understanding of the, the life cycle uh, of the product as well as, as well as design. If the life cycle is short, you may take a more conservative approach versus a design that will last for, for many years in the marketplace. And lastly, all important question is budget as this will ultimately determine your, your filing strategy, such as how many cases you, you file on, which embodiments you file on, and where you file. You wanna tackle these upfront in the beginning because otherwise this could add unnecessarily unnecessary costs. You don't wanna file on 50, 50 embodiments if your client later on ends up abandoning 49 of them. So preparing your draft application, uh, what are you gonna file on? So this slide just gives you numerous uh, examples of uh, different aspects uh, of products that you can file on. So on the far right is an example of, of artwork. What's important here is that this is uh, applied to an article of manufacture. So it's not just the artwork, but it's a, a, a applied to, uh, to a package. Then you can see there's a, a shaving razor handle here. Um, the, the, the cartridge or, or head with the blades you can see is dashed lines, so those aren't claimed. There's also an example here of um, a, product, a product package. And today, more and more tech companies are also filing on graphic usable interfaces. So this is actually an example uh, from, from Google. Uh, 
So now Brian is going to take you through some uh, potential uh, pitfalls as you go about drafting your patent application. Great. Over to you, Brian. Well, thanks, John. So as John mentioned, uh, we still do have 35 USC applied to design patents. And so section 112 issues loom large, although they have a very different uh, flavor in designs. So in design applications, we often see written description enablement and indefinite issues merge. So if you get one rejection, uh, you'll often get all three. So it, it could be, for example, that if the designs are allegedly indefinite because the drawings are allegedly indefinite because the design the drawings are inconsistent with each other, that's going to be an indefinite issue. But it's also going to be a enablement issue uh, because uh, the USPTO will assert that a person of ordinary skill in the yard couldn't figure out exactly what the shape is and how to implement it. And then if you try to correct it, you can run into written description issues depending on the approach that you take. So we often will include six plus one or six plus two views, including front, back, left, right, top, and bottom, as well as one or more orthograph, one or more perspective views. Uh, you can file with as few as one, and we will talk about this, but, but it can be tricky. Uh, so at least usually uh, with our clients, unless it's a GUI, uh, we'll go ahead with, with uh, at least seven views. Although sometimes, especially with foreign inbound cases, we'll see uh, cases come in with footwear, sometimes two views. And we've been able to manage, able to obtain those from the USPTO, although it can add some complication. So historically, uh, it was really problematic in the US to file with less than seven views. And this is an example of why, kind of the canonical example. So if we file with only one view of this as this bottom view here, Going to the next slide, it's ambiguous because showing two cross sections up above, they're both going to look the same, whether it's a recess in the center or whether it's uh, something that is protruding out of the bottom. So the USPTO historically has rejected that. A couple of years ago, uh, the USPTO took a case all the way to the Federal Circuit in Ray Matita in which they rejected a single view claim directed to a shoe sole as non-enabled and indefinite. And this was a really interesting one to watch, both from a legal perspective, but also from an investment perspective on the USPTO, because the office actually must have gone to a draft person of their own or somebody in-house and actually created these four hypothetical elevations uh, to argue that uh, because that because it could include any of these, that the claim drawing was indefinite. So the Federal Circuit reversed the USPTO and basically said, so long as the invention, scope of the invention is clear, uh, it's not indefinite. Very similar to the breadth does not equal indefiniteness argument that we often will make in utility patents. Uh, there, is, there is a limit to this, however, uh, and the decision notes that if you're claiming the entire design for an entire shoe or a teapot, uh, or other three-dimensional objects, you're, you're not always going to be able to get away with a single, uh, single drawing. Uh, one thing to note, actually, on, on Matita, at least in my practice, I found that this isn't quite the, the panacea uh, that you might hope it to be. Uh, the U.S. That, uh, Matita was decided back in uh, 2018, 
we still haven't seen guidance from the office in terms of how they're going to apply it. I, I don't think they're very happy with it. Uh, and at least in my experience, making Matita-based arguments uh, doesn't usually win the day. Uh, we, we end up going about it in other uh, directions. So uh, you can also see indefinite issues with inconsistent drawings. Uh, and, and these are more difficult to, or should be easy to uh, suss out before you file and, but are difficult to correct afterwards. So this uh, Spanx case uh, involved uh, halter tops. And what you can see, if you look at that red line on the second figure, you can see that there's an inconsistency when you look at uh, figure one, which is of course the front view, figure two is the back. But then when you get to three, four and five, you see that that seam or line uh, is higher or, or is lower in figures in, on the back in figures three through six than it appears in figure two. And so for that uh, reason, the design was held, to, design patent was held to be indefinite and valid. So as John mentioned, uh, we need to have a, a article of manufacture. We can't just claim a design in the abstract. So uh, in, in this can trip up people. Uh, and there was a recent case, uh, Kerber Luxembourg, where this happened, where the applicant filed a pattern for a chair. And the accused device was a basket. I, I should have actually brought some down. I think we have some of these in, in our, uh, above our washer. Uh, and it was dismissed under Rule 12b-6, basically because a basket is not a chair. Now, th this uh, is somewhat of an unusual case, unless you're dealing with clients in the in the plastics industry. Uh, but one way around it uh, might be a molded, uh, a molded product. Uh, I, I think there's a good chance you might get an indefiniteness rejection there. Uh, but this is certainly something where you want to think, and we'll talk about using appendices later on. You may want to think about different levels of protection and try to lay some groundwork for getting the breath that you think you may need while having fallback positions uh, without running afoul of the written description requirement. So uh, is, uh, another point that John mentioned, surface shading uh, can be an issue. And, and particularly here, uh, it seems in the simple human case that the applicant had filed with CAD drawings. Uh, and those CAD drawings, as they often do, include lines which are called out with those blue arrows uh, showing contour lines. So in this case, there was a Markman hearing in which the judge construed the drawings and was faced with the question of whether those are contour lines or whether those are seams in the product. And the judge said they're not contour lines. So this shows a, a risk of using wireframe CAD drawings. Uh, personally, I, I, I think this decision seems rather dubious. One, uh, after a case a couple of years ago, Egyptian goddess, uh, we, we don't see a whole lot of uh, claim constructions, uh, claim construction rulings. Uh, and of course, yeah, I, I think an ordinary observer or designer may not necessarily think those are seams, but it certainly shows a risk. And this, I was looking at this case yesterday, uh, looks like there's a stipulated dismissal. So I'm not sure that uh, this is something that's likely to get flipped by the federal circuit. So as we mentioned, 
although we call them both, both of them patents, utility patents and design patents differ in a number of different ways. And it's very helpful, especially if you haven't filed a design patent before to know about these going into it so that you can avoid surprises and you can avoid surprising your clients. So we'll run through a number of those. Uh, for emergency filings, like we've all had the experience of a client calling us up at one o'clock saying they have a disclosure either that day or tomorrow. And it's relatively simple to accommodate that with a last minute provisional filing. You might be at the office till nine o'clock at night taking care of it, but uh, between you and your assistant, you can get things done. Uh, design patents, uh, emergency filings are, are a lot more challenging. As we mentioned, they almost always require the services of a draftsperson to prepare drawings. Uh, and, and drafts people are great, but they can't always work miracles. Uh, so if you get something coming in, uh, first of all, you, you want to have a good relationship with the draftsperson and understand what their policies are. Some drafts people charge rush fees, understandably, others don't. Uh, but again, you, you want to know who to call and quite frankly, also tell your client that this may not be possible uh, if, uh, if they have any latitude and can give you just a couple more days in delaying the disclosure. Uh, th that may be the best way to go relative to trying to put in something with poor drawings that, as I mentioned earlier, can be very, very, very difficult to remedy due to the 112 issues regarding written description. So priority practice differs quite a bit between utility patents and design patents. In utility patents, the provisional then PCT or US non-provisional strategy is the most common. In design patents, a priority claim to a provisional application is not possible. Uh, this is a, a key takeaway. Uh, this is often misunderstood amongst uh, the patent bar uh, coming from a utility centric perspective. Uh, priority claims to a U.S. non-provisional application are possible, but only in the United States uh, and can sometimes be helpful. Uh, one area where this has become particularly, uh, particularly helpful is after in re matita. A, a lot of utility applications might include polished applications, but only of a single view. Pre matita, you might run into a lot of problems with indefiniteness because you only have one view of the product. Post matita, uh, those drawings may give you the ability to claim one or more views of a design. So in utilities, we have one year priority deadline and then typically you file a PCT to preserve rights in a, 150 states. In design patents, it's a six month priority period. So similar to trademarks for those of you who also practice in trademarks. Uh, the, instead of the PCT, we have the Hague system, which is much more like a Madrid style centralized filing instead of a PCT option period. So you file a single Hague application, but unlike the PCT, you specify up front that I'm filing a Hague application designating the European Union, Canada, and Great Britain. Uh, you don't get to add to that later on like you do with Madrid or uh, at the end of 30 months like you do with the PCT. Uh, Hague system uh, is a nice improvement. The USPT, US recently joined it uh, during my career, uh, but, but it's not as broad as the PCT, particularly has about half as many countries and notably does not include Australia or China. So because of that, uh, does direct filings are much more common in the design sphere than in utilities. 
that leads to various uh, formalities and, and lead time. Uh, the drawing requirements can vary. Uh, oftentimes we need legalized priority document, legalized powers of attorney or priority documents. And of course you have the usual time differences that we deal with. Uh, so when you're thinking about this with a client relative to uh, a utility patent, if you're two weeks out from your priority date, again, six months for design versus one year from utility, uh, you're in a much tighter spot for designs unless uh, this is a playbook that the client runs very often and you have your foreign associates in place uh, and powers of attorney. Uh, so we, we get much more nervous uh, with design apps, design foreign filing than we do for PCT, which we, we comfortably file every day. Uh, so as I mentioned, uh, you need more pre-planning. Uh, in particular, the, the drawing requirements can vary from country to country. Uh, for example, uh, graphical user interface designs often need hardware in broken lines. So instead of waiting till you get close to that six month period where you may find out that you need to amend the drawings and therefore break your priority claim potentially, the, the best approach is when you are getting ready to file your initial application, ask your client where they might want to file internationally and then talk to a foreign associate in those countries before you file your US uh, application. That way you can bake in those additional drawings and then have a, a robust priority claim all the way back to your US filing. So uh, grace periods, uh, as John mentioned, uh, there are some grace periods that if your client did disclose this, not all is lost. Uh, Similar uh, between the utility and design in the US, you still have the convoluted provisions of section uh, 102. Um, on, the, on the design side, uh, it's a little bit more liberal uh, given that you have the addition of Europe. Uh, but again, much like with utilities, you really wanna check with your foreign council as soon as possible, uh, just to make sure you don't need to have any sort of declarations uh, at the time that you file. As we discussed earlier, uh, written description issues, even though there's very few words in design patents, uh, still do loom large. I, I find that relative to utility patents, it, it's a more exacting standard. Uh, with utilities, you have a combination of words and figures, especially in the United States, relative to Europe and China, can give you a little bit more latitude. Uh, with designs, it's very much a question of, did you have the original line in question? And that was made clear uh, in, in Ray Owens, which is the case on the right, uh, the right column of the table. So this is a case actually from Procter & Gamble, uh, where uh, they continued to file a series of continuations to try to target infringers, and eventually uh, decided, to decided to claim just the upper trapezoidal portion of the front of a uh, scope bottle. And the federal circuit uh, decided that there wasn't a written description for drawing, defining the claim at that particular portion. Obviously in, in the top, which did have written description because it was the original case, the full, uh, full bottle was claimed. Uh, but in this case, uh, you're basically deciding where to stop those lines that define the claims. And so the court distinguished from that from In Ray Davis, where there was a parent filed for a lamp uh, with a uh, with ornamentation applied to it, and then that was removed in the child. Uh, again, 
you know, I, I think if uh, if they had tried to break those leaves or flames uh, in Davis apart, uh, they would have probably run into the same issue. So as John mentioned earlier, you can, you can take some different strategies with regard to uh, multiple embodiments in trying to maximize your patent term. Because we don't have the 20 years from the earliest effective filing date that we see in uh, utility applications, you can actually chain together multiple filings and in some cases end up with a term that's longer than 20 years from your first filing. Uh, but this can also raise some risks in terms of scope. So th this is a, a distinct area of strategy that deserves a lot of attention in design that we just don't really have to worry about that much in utility. So we'll discuss three cases, see how this plays out. So first case is Inray Klein. Uh, th this is an old case uh, involving shingles uh, that I think shows a, a very different practice at the office, but is helpful in understanding and, and construing design patents because we do sometimes see design patents issue that have really clearly multiple embodiments of, uh, of a design. And so the question becomes, if you have three embodiments, for example, is that indefinite? Because they of course don't agree with each other. Uh, is the claim broad? Is the claim narrow? How do you apply this if uh, the patent design patent is being asserted against you? And so the way the Federal Circuit and the uh, Board of Patent Appeals and Interferences at the time construed this was basically as a Marcouche grouping uh, in which the, the board said if uh, a prior art references teach, teaches or suggests one of the three embodiments, then the entire claim falls. So again, that's helpful in terms of construing this. If you see it, uh, this is very, if you filed that application today, both John and I believe you'd get a restriction requirement uh, and, and there's almost no way you'd end up getting that in the same, the same design patent. So where the risk comes in follows uh, Pacific Coast Marine. And this was a case uh, from the Federal Circuit back in 2014, where a, uh, the applicant had filed for seven embodiments for a speedboat windshield. And the difference here, uh, in case you can't see in the, uh, in the PowerPoint, is the number of holes uh, in this corner piece. So not surprisingly, based on USPTO practice, uh, you end up with a seven-way restriction requirement. The applicant filed, uh, elected first uh, four circular holes and then filed the divisional application directed to the no hole embodiment. And wouldn't you know it, the uh, accused device has three holes. So the, the question then becomes whether there was non-infringement based on prosecution history estoppel. So the federal circuit uh, found that there was a surrender of the two hole embodiment and then remanded for further proceedings uh, uh, where it settled uh, for undisclosed, uh, undisclosed terms. So this is the biggest concern that we have, at least I have when I'm, when I'm drafting an application, is if we're going to include multiple embodiments in the original application, uh, I always make sure that I counsel our client about what this is going to mean down the road if we get a restriction requirement. 
because we don't want to find ourselves in a situation, uh, at least one that's unexpected, where things change over the course of a few years and either the client is surprised with the budget and doesn't want to file a divisional application or for whatever reason. And now we have a situation where we have subject matter that was restricted out and now is arguably uh, disclaimed. Uh, another case uh, from the Federal Circuit, uh, Adventech v. Shanghai Walk Long, basically followed the Malibu boats uh, uh, precedent, but took it in a, a different way. So here, uh, this is a dog, uh, dog crate. Uh, there was an election of figures one and four in one through four in response to a restriction requirement. And wouldn't you know it, the accused device, which is on the right, uh, has a roof, whereas the, uh, whereas the, pro, uh, the, the elected embodiment did not. Uh, Federal Circuit reversed here, uh, reversed a judgment on pleadings, basically saying that even if there was a surrender, the accused product fell out, uh, outside the scope of the surrender because you could take the roof off the uh, defendant's product and then it still looks very, very similar uh, to the claimed product. So th this, again, this opens up a couple different ways that we can go about this uh, from a strategic perspective. It, it always goes back, at least for me, to budget. Uh, we wanna talk with our clients upfront and figure out whether they're going to eventually wanna file more than one patent applications. If they are, and they're confident that they're gonna still feel that way in a couple of years, then what you can do is include those multiple embodiments, anticipate that you're gonna get a restriction requirement, which gives you the section 121 obviousness type double patenting safe harbor. And now you have multi staggered 15 years from 15 year from grant terms. Uh, typically for those who haven't filed, it typically takes a couple years to get a design patent. So you could easily have a situation where if you say you only have two embodiments, uh, if you file one uh, about three years, it grants, you have a restriction requirement, you file the second, now you're out six years plus 15, now you're out to 21. So it oftentimes is the case that you may want to not include the most relevant embodiment in the first, uh, in your first election uh, from a restriction group and instead uh, keep it a little bit later so you can get a longer term. Additionally, and one point we didn't mention earlier, design patents aren't published until they grant. So at least for your, the term of your first design patent in a family, nobody's gonna be able to see it within the United States. That does differ outside the United States, uh, but if you're filing in the US only, that's going to stay uh, confidential. So what you can do if you don't think they are gonna do that, or if the client's not sure, uh, and oftentimes they aren't, you can use an appendix uh, to include those additional embodiments. And what that does is it gives you the 112 support you need. So therefore you can present it down the road in a divisional application or continuation application, but it doesn't force the restriction requirement and based on case laws, we know it shouldn't trigger a dis prosecution history disclaimer. Another approach that uh, I've seen is you present those multiple embodiments then file a preliminary amendment before restriction. So I, I know some practitioners will 
might file with 30 drawings on Monday and then do a preliminary amendment on Tuesday, uh, knowing that they don't need that uh, for the US and they, or they don't want it. Uh, but that way they have a filing date and then they can uh, proceed uh, just with a more streamlined set of drawings. And again, that appendix can be very helpful for thinking about uh, varying foreign filing requirements. Uh, so again, talking to your associate, if you need particular drawings for a GUI, for example, include those in the appendix, and then you have a very clear priority document providing support. So that brings us to the end. Um, let me just get out of this. I'm not sure if there's any questions. Jen or John, can you see uh, if there's any questions? I don't see any questions here. If you could see if you can share that screen, Jenna. Um, I just want to add, it, um, add two more notes in regards to sort of post-prosecution, if you will. So once you have your, your design patent grant, um, don't forget to uh, have a patent marking site, a virtual patent marking. Um, so that, that'll help you with, with damages. And the other thing I would want to note as well is if you end up having and filing design patents in, in China, those are, are typically not, they're not examined. Those are basically go through a, a registration process where they're, they're rubber stamped. But if you want to end up enforcing that in China, for example, to take some product down on Alibaba, then you can end up having to request a what's called a, a patent evaluation report in in China. So if your your client does a lot of uh, e-commerce and their product is getting knocked off on the various uh, platforms, uh, consider filing in in China. And once you get the registration, request a patent evaluation report there. Thanks, John. Uh, one other thing that we we didn't discuss discuss uh, in, in the slides, uh, but with regard to freedom to operate with regard to designs, one thing to keep in mind is that because design patents are held in confidence and because the pendency has been drifting upwards post Apple v. Samsung, it, it is very important uh, that you advise your client that there's more of a black hole than or a blind spot than we have in doing utility freedom to operate. Obviously with utilities, you have the 18 month blackout period, uh, but with designs it's really much more like a, a three year blackout period, unless it's somebody filing outside the US. So if you have any questions, please uh, type them in and send those in to us and we'll see if we can uh, get to those in our last 10 minutes here. We're waiting to see if there's any questions. Uh, one thing to keep in mind, again, although 112 issues can uh, really loom large in uh, design patent prosecution, prior art issues are exceedingly rare, or rejections are at least, uh, before the USPTO. I don't know that I, I don't think I've ever received uh, uh, even an obviousness rejection, although one of my mentors had challenged me to file a design for a, a perfect sphere and, and watch what happens. I, I never took him up on that. 
So uh, part of that reason is the federal circuit has a much more limited test for design patent obviousness than uh, in utility. Basically, you need something in a lot of ways similar to the lead compound for a chemistry obviousness. So you need a very close uh, lead reference for design patent obviousness. So as a result, we, again, we don't really see this before the SPTO. It does get litigated before the PTAB uh, where there have been uh, invalidations and we do see it before the courts, but uh, it really is very, very rare uh, in my experience before examiners. Oh, looks like we have a question. But just because you're able to get it registered through the PTO, it uh, doesn't mean you can have an easy time uh, enforcing it against an accused uh, infringer though. So that, that, that's, a, that, that's the other watch out there. So if, there's a, if the art is very, very busy, you can have a, a difficult time um, you know, proving infringement. Yeah, yeah, and, and just to explain that a little bit more, and I do see we have one question we'll get to in a minute. Uh, uh, John had alluded to this, the way the ordinary observer test works for infringement is it basically asks, would an ordinary observer familiar with the design and the prior art believe that uh, the accused device originates from the same source as the claim drawing? So the effect of that is, if you have a lot of prior art that's very close to your invention, close to the claim design, the scope of that claim design is going to be construed much more narrow because it needs to be differentiated from the prior art. Uh, so, so when we, if somebody asserts a design against our client, the first thing that we do is we pull all of that prior art and we'll often conduct an additional prior art search just to see how close this is and basically you can make a, you know, kind of a practicing the prior art argument. Uh, it's more viable in a lot of ways in design patents than it is in utility where, where it's been really rejected by the uh, federal circuit. So the uh, first question is, are there regional design patent bodies such as uh, to the EU? And the answer is yes. So uh, the European IPO or intellectual property office, uh, the same, uh, the same body that handles trademarks in Europe also handles designs. So this does have an implication with regard to Brexit, unlike the European Patent Office, which was established before the European uh, community, before the European Union, and therefore is completely unaffected uh, by Brexit. Uh, designs are, uh, registered designs are affected in the same way that trademarks are. So there's a cloning procedure that happens for designs that were registered before December 31st of 2020. Uh, and the, the uh, UK is currently in the process of working through that. And similarly, if you have a design pending now, uh, you can file a UK application, uh, sorry, assuming it was filed before December 31st, you can file to extend that into uh, the UK. And I just wanna to highlight too, there's also it's not as uniform as utility patents in, in regards to your protection globally. So 20 years uh, from the, the date of filing, that's universal for utility patents. However, you, you'll get a, a, whole, a whole smorgasbord, if you will, as far as when uh, design rights end up expiring. 
So for example, Canada, I believe is only 10 years. Uh, um, Europe, you'll get over, over 20 years. Uh, China just recently changed their laws. I think it comes into effect in for applications filed um, after June 1st. They go from 10 years to, to 15 years of, of protect, protection. So it's, it's, it's not standard across the board. And as Brian mentioned with the, the publication, publication varies as well. So uh, Europe and China, for example, uh, publish very quickly. So they may publish uh, in less than six months. Yeah. And one thing to, to fall upon the international angle, the, uh, the Hague system does, because of the lack of examination that most a lot of countries apply to design patents, uh, the Hague system to a certain extent can provide something approaching pan-global coverage. And as a result of that, we've seen large brands, for example, Nike makes pretty aggressive use of the Hague system uh, for golf clubs or golf balls. They'll file in a lot of African states, for example, that my guess would be if not for their inclusion in Hague and the fact that they can just do the filing without having engaged an associate and without the likelihood of examination, I'm not sure that they would be filing uh, in those states, but it's a relatively small, relatively small marginal cost to add them to a Hague filing that they're already making uh, because uh, you know, it includes Canada and Europe and other states where uh, there's a particular need for them to file. Any further questions pop up there, Brian? No, I don't see any. Uh, so uh, hearing none, uh, we, we thank you all for joining us and uh, feel free to reach out to either of us if there's any questions. Uh, oh, now we have. Yep, so uh, Alexander Adam asked if a client wants to file a design application off a utility, what are the, some of the concerns? So two that come to mind are, one is the written description for the embodiment. So. Uh, as I mentioned earlier, under Matita, uh, you may be all set with uh, written description if you can uh, file, if you can rely on the limited views that you typically have in a utility application. If you don't, then the next question becomes, when was that utility application published, uh, usually under pre-grant, 18 months from the filing? And you can find yourself in, in kind of a tricky situation where if you're uh, 30 months out, so therefore 18 plus 12, uh, you have that application available against you as prior art, and, but you don't have a full enough disclosure in order to fully support the design that you're trying to present. Now, much like with CIP practice in the United States for utility patents, an examiner may not bring this up, uh, but you, you should anticipate that a, a accused infringer will bring this up either before the PTAB or before the court, either to try to invalidate the design application based on the utility or to try to limit the scope based on the argument that if your utility patent publication is the prior art, then uh, and you can't get around that because of the grace period, then your design application necessarily needs to have a very, very, very narrow scope in order to uh, avoid obviousness. 
And as you mentioned with the In Ray Owens case, right, it's going to end up being uh, difficult to get broad protection. So you're going to be pretty much stuck with those drawings that were in your utility filing. Uh, you're not going to be able to just start removing lines and, and putting in broken lines in that filing. Great. Well, if there's anything further, again, uh, thank you uh, and everyone enjoy the weekend. Great. Thank Take you care. so much, everyone. Thank you to the speakers and thank you everyone that participated. And again, this will be recorded and it will be uploaded on our Learn Online page. Thank you all. Bye.